Psalms chapter 94. What a blessing it is to be with you in the house of the Lord. The uh, preaching of the word of God tonight. Isn't it good just to be able to gather with God's people? I'll tell you, the world beat up on you all week. And, and I, I'm saying this for your benefit, not mine. I've, I've had a great week, but I trust some of you all had a terrible one. Amen. And uh, if you have, uh, I, I can tell you that you've come to the right place. Tonight. I believe the Lord will give you a little encouragement in his word. Psalms chapter 94, let's begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read through our text, then we'll have a word of prayer with these prayer requests. The psalmist begins in this way. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things, and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand ye brutish among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge shall not he know. The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing it is to be in your house. Now, Lord, we've come here tonight with hearts that are heavy with prayer requests needs, some of them, Lord, bearing directly upon our lives and others of these prayer requests, no doubt, that uh, have been brought to us that we might bring them to you. And Lord, we just ask that you would meet with these requests according to thy will, Lord, that the health uh, challenges that people are facing, that you touch their health, raise them up, financial difficulties people are facing. Lord, we know you're the God of provision and that, Lord, you are not restrained in any way from being able to meet those needs. Lord, I pray that you would meet them according to your will. I pray for the spiritual needs, most of all that have been mentioned tonight, Lord. Uh, lives that are in bondage, in chains tonight, that can only be set free by you. So we just pray, Father, that you would work miraculously in their life. Show them that there's no hope in a bottle, there's no hope in a needle, there's no hope in relationships, there's no hope in uh, money, Lord, but that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray they'd turn to you before it's everlasting too late. I pray for the preaching tonight that it would exalt the Lord Jesus, that it'd help your people. Lord, that in every way you'd be pleased. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalms chapter 94 finds us at evidently a troubling time in the life of the psalmist. Uh, A few services ago, we preached on the 73rd Psalm when Asaph, the song leader of the temple choir, there in Israel was struggling in, internally with his own uh, soul and with his own faith. And 
I think there is probably a similar event taking place in the life of the psalmist here in Psalms 94. We're not told who precisely is the penman of this psalm. We know who the author is. Amen. That's the Lord. We know the Holy Ghost wrote it. But we don't know who held the pen on this particular day. We can gain an understanding somewhat of his frame of mind. We, I think, could easily say that the psalmist is going through an, a time of adversity in his life. That's how he characterizes it a little bit later on. He talks about being in a day of adversity. What was it that made this time so difficult in the life of the psalmist? Now, I think what you'll find when we look at some of these things uh, is that it's very similar to what we see going on around us today uh, in our life. And it's very similar to what the psalmist in Psalm 73 was dealing with. For instance, in uh, Psalms uh, 94.3, listen to what he says. He's praying to the Lord and he says, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things and all the workers of iniquity boast themselves? So evidently, as he looked around at the world around him, he saw much of what we see today when we turn on the TV, when we look out the window, when we examine the modern state of our society. He looked around and it appeared as though sinners around him were succeeding in life. Now, let me say this very quickly before we move on. I don't think that the attitude of the psalmist here is that of petty resentment or covetousness. His desire is not to see other people struggle. But he does believe, uh, most uh, according with Scripture, most appropriately, uh, that God blesses those that are faithful to Him, that God punishes those that are disobedient unto Him, that those that live in sin, those that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, uh, that God may be their God, but He is not their Father, and that they uh, rightly could be expected to be the recipients of suffering and struggling, just as we all are, even we as children of God. Uh, face our share of struggling. So he looks around and he says, you know, it just don't make sense to me to see the children of God struggling, but then to see those that don't know God succeeding. He goes on in verse 5 to detail that suffering. He says, they break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. So he says, while the sinners are succeeding, the saints seem to be suffering. Uh, those that do wrong seem to be advancing in life, and those that are trying to do right, live right, and be right, those that know the Lord uh, as their God and as their Savior, they seem to be struggling. And can I say that after 10 years of pastoring, certainly it would seem, you'll, you live long enough in the Christian experience, you'll see a lot of God's people go through hurting. And you'll see a lot of wicked people seeming to coast through life. This is not something that, has expired in the way of the human experience. We still face it today. And as we face it today, I think it's encouraging to note it's not something that showed up yesterday. It's been around a long, long time. You might say, preacher, why is that? And I'm going to give you some cursory uh, examples of why that is, some reasons from Scripture. Can I just say this, that, uh, you know, the lost person's father, Christ said in John chapter number 8, I believe it is, is the devil. Isn't that what he said, Brother Charlie? He's talking to the Pharisees. He said, you're of your father, the devil. When a person gets born again, they get born into a new family. They were born into the family of the devil initially, uh, but they're born again into the family of God. Now God is their father. Now it's true, listen, that God is the God of the universe, unquestionably. It is true that there's nothing that transpires in all of existence that is not 
in some way under his control and under his jurisdiction. He may not be controlling it, but it's never out of his control. He always has the means and the right and the jurisdiction to intervene in those things. But you know, uh, Paul reminded us of this, that uh, this world and the world system that exists, and there is a world system. You might say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I mean a culture and way of thinking in the world today. That system is under the control and authority and under the direct uh, under the direct manipulation of the devil. Uh, the Bible calls the devil the God of this world. So I would merely say this to you tonight. Is it any surprise? Is it any surprise that a lost person could succeed in a world that is crafted, governed over, and is, is administered by his or her spiritual father, the God of this world, the devil? In other words, it is natural that lost people would see a certain amount of success in this world. But can I give you a second reason? You with me tonight? Can I give you a second reason? Uh, and maybe it's not even a reason. Maybe it's just a statement. And that's to say this. It ain't all over yet. Uh, now, that, that does not mean we should relish in anyone's uh, adversity, in anyone's tragedy, in anyone's calamity. And I'm not saying Christians need to be sitting around rubbing their hands waiting for something bad to happen to a lost man. Uh, listen, that's not a Christ-like spirit. We ought to love them. We ought to pity them. We ought to have mercy and compassion upon them. But inasmuch as sometimes it's easy to get tore up at seeing how unjust the world is, we need to be reminded that this world is not the be-all, end-all that it's not time but eternity that will have the greatest bearing on us. So he sees sinners succeeding. He sees saints suffering. And then he mentions something else. Look back at verse 1. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. He's affirming that God has the right to take vengeance. He says in verse 2, or in, at the end of verse 1, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, he says, show thyself. Now there's something implicit going on here, Brother Larry. If he says show thyself, that would mean that he don't see God anywhere. You don't tell someone to show themselves if they're standing out in the open. Am I right? You with me? I don't know if it's me or it's you tonight. Somebody better help me. You don't have to tell somebody to show themselves if they're standing out in the open. The psalmist pleads with God and says, God, show yourself. What does that tell us? It tells us that try as he may, he couldn't find God anywhere. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't believe in God. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a relationship with God. So what does he mean when he says show thyself? Well, in verse 2, he Defines it. He says, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. So he's saying this, Lord, I know you're there. I know you're present in my life. But I don't just want you to show up in my life. I want you to show up in a big way on the world scene. And I want you to exact justice. He's crying out for the justice of God. Uh, the absence of God, seeming absence of God, was so apparent that in verse number 7, even the lost people were talking about it. He says, yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Wicked men were saying, if God really cared about you, he'd do something. If he really cared, he'd show up. If he really cared, he would intervene in your situation. Now, that is a lost perspective. That is a, an unregenerate perspective. That takes for granted that God's chief job is to do what we want him to do. And that's not God's chief job. His chief job, as it relates to our relationship with him and our spiritual development, is not for him to do what we want him to do, but it's for him to do what we need him to do to make us more into the image of Christ. But a, a wicked world will look at the suffering of the child of God and will use it as a cudgel to beat the child of God over the head with. And your flesh will do the same thing. Your flesh will do the same thing. 
the uh, the devil will do the same thing. He'll sneak up alongside the, the world and your flesh and say, if God really cared about you, he'd change your circumstances. So he was struggling because the sovereign was silent. The God of all creation, the God that he prayed to and the God that he heard from was not intervening in his situation. Uh, so he was struggling here and he, he defines that struggling in verse number 16. He says, who will rise up for me against the evildoer or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Something seems to happen in verse 17. Because it seems as though in the first 16 verses he is speaking very presently about what he is going through. He's talking about how he's feeling and he's asking God in that moment, intervene for me, stand up for me, show yourself for me, make a difference in this situation for me. But in verse number 17, he seems to speak retrospectively. He says in verse 17, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. Can I say a couple things here? This isn't my message, but I but I want to say it. I like that. I like how verse seventeen just sort of slides, sweeps in onto the scene. Because it reminds me that no matter what we're going through as a child of God, these things do pass. What you're going through right now, it does pass. He don't even say how it passed. He just it just he's talking in one moment. He's struggling. He's going through it, and in the very next phrase, it's just all over with, almost like a storm that swept in. And then blew out all of the sudden. What you're going through, it will not last forever. And I would venture this guess, and there may be some some circumstances that might be exceptions to what I'm about to say, but most of us, the problems we're going with, we're going through, we're going to outlive. That's not true of everybody. Some people face health health challenges that that God uses that to take them on to glory. Some people uh, struggle with things for the remainder of their life, battles. And struggles that they face. But most of us, and most of our problems, most of us will outlive those problems. This will pass that you're going through. But then notice what he says at the end of verse 17. He said, unless the Lord had been my help. So he says, this is what would have happened if God hadn't showed up. He said, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. You know, the devil has a great interest in shutting us up. There's great power in praise. There's great power in testimony and talking about the goodness of God in our life. And the devil, if he can't do anything else in our life, in our life, if he can just get us to be quiet, that'll be enough. I think that we as a people, and when I say we, I mean God's people, we have taken a very pacifistic perspective and attitude towards much of the conflict in the world. And I don't think that's inappropriate for this simple reason that we understand our kingdom is not of this world. If if Christ's kingdom was of this world, then would his servants fight? We understand that we don't accomplish anything by the sword or by the gun in as much as religion or or soul winning or or proselytizing, whatever you want to say, uh, calls it. You know, we're, we're not called to be activists. We're called to be Christians. We're not called to be activists. We're called to be Christians. And because of that, I think very often we allow that passive attitude to bring us into a place of submission that is so total as regards the world system that we're afraid to even speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the one of the worst things that can happen in your life and mine is just for us to be quiet about what the Lord's done for us. I didn't say that the worst thing would be for you or I to be quiet about our opinion about 
politics or sports or whatever it might be, sweet tea, unsweet tea. We ain't even got to talk about that. It's settled already. But the worst thing that can happen in your life or mine, spiritually, one of the worst things, is that we just quit talking about the goodness of God. The psalmist said, man, I I almost fell into silence. He said in verse 18, when I said my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. This ain't even preaching. I'm just making a few statements on my way to the sermon. But isn't it interesting that it was it was when he said my foot slipped that the Lord's mercy held him up. Could have been if he hadn't been willing to get honest about how he was struggling, he would have fell. Sometimes we've got to get honest before the Lord can help us. In fact, I'd say every time we've got to get honest before the Lord can help us. I don't think it's by accident, Brother Charlie, that he said it was when I admitted that I was struggling. When I admitted that my foot was slipping. What does that mean? When your foot slips, you're about to fall. You're about to spill out. You're about to, you're about to fall out onto the floor. He said, I was about to fall. And when he acknowledged that, when he admitted it, when he confessed it to God, that's when he found the mercy of the Lord. Again, I think our culture is such that as regards Christianity, we take a very pacifistic approach. I think as regards our national identity, uh, we uh, focus very much on the idea of individualism. And I'm not against individualism. I'm not against rugged individualism. Uh, I'm not against obnoxious individualism. But in as much as we have learned to lean upon that concept, can I say this? Can't none of us do it without the Lord? Can't none of us do it without the Lord? It's possible to be so prideful we won't even ask God for help when we're about to fall and to fall. Not he didn't fall because he was, uh, he wouldn't have fell because he was slipping. He would have fell because he was prideful. That's why pride goeth before a fall. Uh, a man doesn't have to fall. The Lord will hold him up if he'll just get honest with himself and honest with God. I would say this. This was a man that was struggling. But when I read verse number 19, I find something fascinating. In the midst of everything he's going through, he makes this statement. He says, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Now, this is a man that is dealing with turmoil on every side. This is a man that is having a real, meaningful crisis of faith. He has questions for God that God hadn't answered yet. Here is a man that is uh, dealing with, watching those that he loves being destroyed. This is a man that is dealing with watching those that are doing the destroying, succeeding. This is a man that's struggling with the fact that God isn't showing up in all of it. But in the midst of all that, somehow he found peace of mind. Verse 19, he says, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. I want to take just a moment tonight and say a few things about peace of mind. I'd say that you could... If you put it in a bottle and sell it, you'd probably be a billionaire before the sun set tonight. We live in a world that is constantly grappling for and struggling for and groping for peace of mind. And you know, as children of God, we can let the peace of God rule in our hearts. But you know, it's one thing to let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's another thing to have peace of mind. In other words, it's possible to not make any moves, to not make any changes, to know God's got control over it, but to still lay in bed at night and have our sleep eaten away by worry and anxiety. 
I don't just want peace in my heart. I want peace of mind too. And the psalmist tells us just exactly where peace of mind is. Brother Charlie tells us how to get it. So notice three things with me and I'll be done tonight. Notice first off, the place of peace. He says that peace resides where? In the multitude of my thoughts within me. You know what that tells me? It tells me, number one, that peace is not an external state. Peace doesn't come from everything going well. And again, I, I, the longer you live in this life, the more you're going to have to grab hold of that. Because just to be frank, the longer you live, uh, the less time you've got that things ain't falling to pieces. I hang out with old people. I do. That's my crowd. I listen to the things they're going through. I listen to the things that burden their hearts. You ought to come over senior saints sometime during prayer request time. You know what you'll find? You'll find person after person dealing with big things. Big things. Now, I'm not saying anything's too big for God, and I'm not saying anything's too small for God. But I'm, you know, I'm just saying they're dealing with big things. I'm talking about life in pieces around them. I'm talking about waiting on a doctor to call to find out if they're going to live six months. I'm talking about praying for great, great grandchildren born on drugs, born messed up. And some of them raising them, dealing with big things. And some of you in this room are probably facing big things. And you wonder, no doubt, how you're ever going to find peace in the midst of all that. But can I tell you a scriptural, it's not a secret, it's right here Black and white in our King James Bible. But it is something the world is not aware of. And it's something you might not be aware of. You don't have to wait for everything to get good to have peace. You don't have to wait for all your problems to go away to have peace of mind. You can have peace of mind tonight before you leave this place. Because peace is not an external state. Then I would say this. He does not say in the multitude of my feelings within me. He says, in the multitude of my thoughts. Now, I understand that in the Bible, the heart and the mind are often synonymously spoken of. I understand not only their similarities, I understand their disparities. I understand why the mind is talked about and why the heart is talked about. Sometimes they're used interchangeably, but most of the time it's used to denote aspects of our consciousness. For instance, the heart denotes our emotions, our feelings, and our personality. The mind tend to denote, uh, tends to denote our thought life, what we actively engage our mind with. Now you might say, preacher, how do you distinguish? Well, they overlap, and I'm not saying they're altogether different. But I will say this, the fact that the Lord said, it's not within my feelings, it's within my thoughts, reminds me that peace is not an emotional state. It's not about how you feel. This, I think, is the great distinction we all need to walk away from here tonight with. It's not about how you feel. You can feel worry in your heart and still have peace in your mind. If you're waiting until you feel good about your problems to have peace, you're not going to have peace. I don't know that I've ever met anyone felt good about the problems. I've certainly never had a problem I was excited to have. Have you? I've never had a problem that I said, I'm just tickled pink that I'm going through this. You see, the world will tell you that peace comes from feeling good about things. And the reason is because they're trying to sell you a, a, a bill of sale. They're trying to tell you that meaningfulness, that purpose in life, that fulfillment in life comes from doing what feels good. So then when they sell people that and they live a life of, of, of license and of, 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 of uh, ill behavior and they find no peace, they have to turn around and make it 
as though the problem is with them and not with how they're living. The fact is, it's not that they are emotionally broken, uh, but it's that peace never resided primarily. It never began in the heart in the first place where how you feel your emotions is never the primary place of peace. Only in as much as it projects from what you are fixing your thoughts upon into your heart. I'm not saying that having peace of mind can't produce peace of heart. I'm saying you may not have peace in your heart, you can still have peace in your mind. You may not feel good about what you're going through, but you can still have peace with the Lord about it. So it's not an emotional state. We live in a world very focused on emotion. I'm not against emotions. God created us with emotions. Emotions are not our enemy. But they shouldn't be our master either. And if you're waiting until you feel good about something to trust God with and have peace, I'm sorry, but you're never going to feel good enough about your flesh will make sure of that. So it's not an emotional state. But what does he say? He says, in the multitude of my thoughts within me. I jotted it down this way. That tells me peace is not an external state and it is not an emotional state, but rather it is an internal, mental, and spiritual state. I would say this, that primarily it's spiritual. However, the way that we get in that spiritual state has to do with what we do with our mind and with our thoughts. That ought to encourage you and I. You know why? Because chances are our problems ain't going to be fixed when we walk out these doors. Now, maybe it is. I hope it is. I hope you get whatever your biggest problem is. I hope you get a text message right in the middle of the service that says it's all fixed. But most of us won't experience that. We'll walk out those doors back into the same problems that we left at the door when we walked in. And so we need to understand how this peace can reside in our hearts. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This gives us a little hint. We'll say more about it in a moment. But he says, casting down imagination. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Did you know there's a warfare that goes on in our minds? Did you know that there are things that will try to dethrone Christ and will exalt themselves against the knowledge of God? In other words... There is a warfare transpiring. There is a battle taking place in our mind as to what we're going to focus on. And these things that would seek to uh, draw from us our faith, to weaken our strength, to cause us to yield to worry and anxiety instead of trusting the Lord with our problems, these things, what they're trying to do is push out the knowledge of God in our heart and mind. In other words, everybody in this room knows that God's in control. I mean, I, listen, you're here on a Wednesday night. You could have been anywhere. You're here, chances are, I don't know, I don't want to speak for anybody's heart. You may be lost as a ball in high wheat, but I'd venture to guess that most, if not everybody in this room, you know the Lord, you love the Lord, that's why you're here on a Wednesday night. You want God to do something in your life. And you know God's in control. You know God's in control of what you're going through right now. You know that. The question is, what are you going to focus on? Because there's all these other fears and anxieties and doubts that are trying to push that knowledge of God out, trying to dethrone it, trying to take the place of what should reign supreme in your mind and mine, which is the knowledge of God, and instead producing us a disobedient mind, a mind that doesn't want to trust Christ with what we're going through. So I see the place of peace, and that place is in the mind. But notice the path of peace. Somebody says, well, that's a good preacher, but I already knew peace of mind was in the mind. 
But the question is, how do I have that peace? Well, he tells us. He says, in the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Now, I'll go ahead and give away the end of the sermon before we get there. You ready? I'd be a terrible storyteller, I guess. We're going to find that if we'll focus our mind on the Lord, we'll get peace of mind. Wherever the Lord reigns, peace is. He's the Prince of Peace. So we'll say here in a moment about the prevailing of peace and how, what we focus on, what we think about. But as a placeholder till we get there, can I just say that we ought to be thinking on the Lord, His goodness and His promises. But it's not good enough just to think on them. We have to think on them a certain way. How do we have to think on them? He says in the multitude. The path to peace has to do with fixing our heart consistently, fixing our mind consistently upon who the Lord is, what He said, and how He desires to work in our life. In other words, He doesn't say in, in the, in the few thoughts in my mind. He doesn't say in the scarcity of my thoughts within me, but in the multitude. You know what we're apt to do? Let me just say it this way. We cannot merely occupy our mind with thoughts of the Lord rarely. You know, we rarely throughout the day think of the Lord the way that we should. How distracted we all get. Every one of us guilty of doing it. Not a person in this room that hadn't started praying that wasn't long before you was watching the telephone poles go by. It wasn't long before you was doing something else. It wasn't long before you was focused on any and everything else. And you know that in a bigger sense, in a broader sense, we have a tendency to only think on the Lord sporadically. You know, the more we fix our mind upon Him, fellowshipping with Him, praying to Him, thinking of Him, that's why we need to be studying our Bible. You know, you'll find this, that if you don't read your Bible very often, you'll have a harder time keeping your mind on it. You know why? Because this book talks about it. The more You're just kind of thinking out into the air when you've not got Scripture to be meditating on. When you've got Scripture that you've been studying, that you've been living in, that you've been breathing, that you've been reading, when you've got Scripture on your mind, there's something for the Lord to use, there's, there's, you know, there, there's, there's fodder there, there's feed there, there's something present for the Holy Ghost to be using in your heart and in your mind. So often, we only think on the Lord when He intrudes into our life. We only think on the Lord on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, maybe for a few minutes when we pray, maybe for a few minutes right before we eat. And we wonder why we're starved to death spiritually. The fact is, if you want peace of mind, you're gonna to have to think on the Lord's promises at least more than you're thinking on your problems. It is true, Brother Charlie. I'll say it again, it's so true. If you want peace of mind, you're at least going to have to be thinking on the Lord's promises more than you're thinking on your problems. But you're like me. You know how I know that? Because we both got blood running through our veins. And you know what you do? And I know you do it because I do it. You know what we tend to do? Uh, We tend to focus predominantly upon our problems. And then only when it gets too heavy to bear, do we go to the Lord? It could be it wouldn't get too heavy to bear if we think on Him more and on those problems less. Now, and we'll say this before we're done tonight, but I'm not talking about living with your head in the sand. I'm not talking about pretending as though those problems aren't there. But you know, you'll find that all the hours you spend wringing your hands over what you're going through ain't going to change what you're going through one, one bit. All it does is rob you of your peace of mind. So we cannot merely think on him rarely. And then I would say this, you know, not rarely, but we also have to think on him not in a reactionary way. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, think on him when everything goes sideways. 
there's such a thing as preventative medicine. I know you know that because everybody in this room, half y'all's on it. You're on things that ain't fix nothing that's wrong with you, but it's just to keep you from falling to pieces. Preventative medicine. That's how we have to start thinking about our spiritual relationship with the Lord. We're always running behind playing catch up spiritually. Everything falls apart and then we come take the pieces to God and say, God, put it back together. Now, I'm thankful to report to you tonight. He's gracious enough to put it back together. He's merciful enough to put it back together. But wouldn't it be good if it didn't fall apart in the first place? I'm just granting that you are spiritually mature enough to receive what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying that you ain't never going to have problems, but why is it we have to wait until uh, everything's about to fall to pieces before we come to Him? It might be that everybody, everything wouldn't be about to fall to pieces all the time if we would just go to Him in the first place. And before our peace of mind is robbed of us, we ought to never allow the opportunity to by fixing our mind upon Him in the first place. I would say it this way. We need to, we need to think on Him not rarely, not reactionary, but regularly. Regularly. It ought to be, you know, in everything we talk about the Lord having the first place. First place in our finances, first place in our time and our, our energies. But I wonder if the Lord has the first place in our mind. I wonder if He is our default thought. I wonder if He is the thing we're thinking on before we're thinking on anything else. I wonder if He is the thing we are fixed upon. I thought about what the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 26.3, some of y'all could quote this to me. But the prophet says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. That's the kind of peace I want. Perfect peace. I don't just want occasional peace. I don't want peace that is weak. I don't want peace that is circumstantial. I want perfect peace. How do I get that? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Not who occasionally thinks about the Lord. Not who comes running to God when everything falls apart. Now, I'm glad He'll receive us if everything's falling apart. And listen, if you're here tonight and, and you've got scooped up into your purse or into your wallet all the pieces of some problem that's falling apart, you ought to find a place at this altar and bring it to God. And he'll fix it. He can fix it. But you don't have to wait till it falls apart in the first place. You can instead fix your mind upon Him. Now, here's really, I think, the question tonight. We see in this passage the place of peace. It's not external. It's not emotional. But it's internal, mental, spiritual. It's what we do with our mind determines whether we have peace of mind. We see the path of peace. That's to fix our mind upon Him distinctly. To let Him be the fundamental, primary, default thought and, and object of our mind's uh, fixation. But then notice the prevailing of peace. Now somebody's going to say, okay, preacher, that's good and everything, but what do I think about? What do I think upon? Well, I notice what he says here in verse 19. He says, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Now, I'm interested not just in what he said, but I'm interested in what he didn't say. Because he doesn't say the fact that everything's okay delights my soul. He didn't say the fact that you're going to pluck me out of my problems tomorrow comforts my soul. It's not what he says. He didn't say the fact that I'll never go through this again delights my soul. Rather, he said the thing that delights my soul in the midst of all this is God's comforts, God's promises, God's presence. In other words, we might say this. He does not feign ignorance of his problems. Look back at verse number 11 with me. And let's read just a few passages here. Verse 11 
The psalmist says, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chastenest, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto righteousness, and all the upright in heart shall follow. Back in verse 13, he says that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity. In other words, the psalmist isn't pretending as though he's not going through adversity. He is affirming the fact that he's going through adversity, but he is acknowledging that God is capable of giving him peace in the days of his adversity. Uh, much of the modern uh, pseudo-spiritualist optimistic voodoo of uh, New Age speakers and motivational speakers and things of that sort are occupied with the notion of pretending as though your problems don't exist, willing them away through ignoring them. That's not a scriptural strategy. You know why? Sooner or later, the dam will break. You can pretend as though you ain't got problems all you want. Sooner or later, your problems are going to come ring your doorbell and show up in a way that you cannot avoid. So God doesn't exhort us to pretend as though our problems don't exist. I mean, listen, you might as well try to drink up the ocean or hug a mountain. You'll, you'll never get that accomplished. And the psalmist does not feign ignorance. He acknowledges that he's going through problems. Number two, he doesn't forget injustices. He says that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. Now, here's a man got peace of mind. Here's a man trusting God. Here's a man that is resting in God's promises. But he ain't forgot about the wicked either. He says, Brother Charlie, he's waiting for that pit to be digged. Now, we understand that language is somewhat figurative. I don't think he was waiting for a literal pit to be digged, but he was saying that sooner or later, God is going to bring about calamity on the unrighteous. And again, there's sort of, I believe, this cultural version of Christianity that suggests to you and I that we cannot hope for justice to be meted out upon the wicked, that compassion means dismissing justness and the requirement for God to take vengeance on the wicked. I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. I don't think it's wrong for us to want justice in in our lives and in the lives of others. I don't think it's wrong to want God to show Himself and to deal with those that are His enemies and that have vaunted themselves against Him. And the psalmist here, he's not forgot about this. He's still talking about it. He's Even in the midst of his peace, he's still talking about the fact that the wicked have done wickedly and been wickedly and acted wickedly. Now that encourages me because again, there is a form of pseudo-psychology that exists today that tells you that peace is found in letting go of everything that has happened in your life. Can I tell you something? It's true we need to forgive in the strength and power of the Lord. But merely coping with merely settling upon the notion that the world is unjust and there will never be justice meted out is not a path to peace either. You shouldn't be required to forget that the wicked are wicked. You shouldn't be, and you are not in fact required to forget that the injustices that have happened have happened. That is not a prerequisite to peace of mind. Uh, the reason why is because sooner or later justice will cry out. Sooner or later, you can try to feign as though, you can try to pretend as though you're okay with it, but sooner or later, sooner or later, it'll get the best of you 
and it'll cause a problem in your heart and your mind because that thing still lives there of saying, why'd they get away with that? That thing still lives there of saying, why'd God let them treat me that way? That thing still lives there of saying, why did God allow them to succeed and allowed me to go through what I went through? So God doesn't tell you you need to forget those things. Instead, what He does say is that we need to focus ourselves, our mind, our heart on God's faithful promises. God says we've got to look past time and look to eternity, past the present to the promises. We've got to look past our current condition and look beyond that to God's sure promises and assurances that justice will one day be meted out, that God will one day elevate us from what we're going through. In other words, what we focus on is not what the world is doing, but what God is saying. We focus not upon what the world is doing to us or about us or with us, but rather upon what God has promised to do in our lives. His promises. Paul described this very clearly in Philippians chapter 4. Now you probably know this passage already, but let me read it to you and then I'll close. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 6. Paul says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And he's told us how to get peace of mind. But Larry now tells us how to keep peace of mind. He says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, there's a lot of lies in the world today. We're going to spend all of our time tore up because the world is lying, because there's falsehood and deception on every hand. And there is. We've got to a place where you can't even believe what you see with your own eyes anymore. I'm talking about stuff like we don't even believe the phone book anymore. We gotta check before we dial. I mean, that's, that's how wicked and deceptive this world is around us. I'm telling you this, you'll never find peace of mind if you're focusing on that. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, there's a lot of impure things in this world today. If we spend all of our time focused on the impurity of the world or the impurity in the lives of others, it'll rob us of our peace of mind. We we can stay tore up at the impurity that may be present in the life of someone else and certainly the impurity that exists in the world. The world is a corrupt place. It's a wicked place. It's a vile place. It's a filthy place. It's a rotten place. And it'll rob us of our peace of mind if we keep our mind on that. Whatsoever things are lovely. So it's talking about me. Whatsoever things are of good report. He says, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise... Think on these things. You know what that means, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise? If it's something that's going to help you, or if it's something that's going to help you praise the Lord, then it's something worth putting your mind on. In other words, if it's something that's going to strengthen you in your faith and cause you to depend more effectually upon God, if there be any virtue in it, any profit in in it, any integrity in it, well, then it's something worth thinking about. But then even if it's not something that's got anything to do with helping you, even if it's something that you already knew about, something you've heard about a hundred times, but it's something that you can praise the Lord over. God says, you ought to put your mind on that thing. He says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. I think what would help us tonight is if we get our mind off of a lot of those things. I'm not saying you need to pretend they don't exist. I'm not saying you need to forget that they've happened. 
I'm saying you can either choose to live with your mind in those things or you can choose to live with your mind in the Word of God and in the promises of God. I will make this statement to you tonight. No amount of worrying you do about it is going to change it. You may feel like it's helping you, but it ain't helping you. You may feel as though you are obligated to worry about it, that that somehow signals that you care. It's funny, that, you know, worry is, is sort of the Christian's virtue signal. We talk, we're afraid about the left and virtue signaling, you know, doing something not because it changes anything, but because it telegraphs that you care about an issue, right? Virtue signal. Christians do the same thing. They just do it with worry and anxiety. That's how they do it. They worry about something to show that they really care about it. But you know God's not impressed with that even the least little bit. God would rather us trust Him with it. We ought to be trusting Him with it. You can trust Him with it. He is trustworthy. Whatever you're going through, you can trust Him. I promise you. More than that, my promise don't mean much, but He promises you that you can trust Him with it. So we ought to get our mind off of those things and get our minds on Him tonight. Let's bow with our heads bowed, our eyes closed as the musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I advocate that you just come and obey the Lord tonight. If He spoke to your heart, will not you find a place on this altar? You might have some broken pieces and broken things you need to bring to Him tonight. If you do, won't you come? And you might have some things that you're struggling with. If you do, why don't you come? Uh, you might have some things that are trying to crowd out the Lord in your mind. If you do, why don't you come? You might have some thoughts that are trying to live in disobedience to the Lord tonight. If you do, why don't you come? The altar's open. If God's spoken to your heart, why don't you come tonight?